0: of Pastor Eric and his family and uh, Pastor Jim and his family and myself and my family we're very grateful for all the the kind words of affirmation the texts uh, the emails uh, the cards and the various types of gifts that you showered upon us for pastor appreciation month we're very thankful so thank you for going uh, the extra mile and loving on us I can honestly say and I think these brothers would agree that we've never felt like uh, we are not loved or appreciated so thank you very much acts 15 we'll be looking at the Jerusalem Council again today so this is actually our fifth our fifth look it won't be our final look but it's our fifth look at acts 15 the events that were surrounding it let's pray together first and then we'll study the word together father we thank you for this lord's day father we thank you that in your kindness that in your goodness that in that in your grace father you've given us one day in seven stop, to reflect, to remember who you are. God, I pray even now that our hearts will be in tune with you and that we will remember we're not coming in the presence of some mere mortal. Instead, we're coming into the presence of a holy God. Help us also to remember that it's only because of Christ, His person, and His work, and His continued work as our great high priest, that we are able to find peace with You and relationship with You, that we are able to pray, Father God, to You. So we thank You. And we thank You for the Spirit's work in us constantly working in our hearts, not leaving us to ourselves, not leaving us to our own devices. So we thank you. We Thank you also for the Holy word, your word. Lord, we admit and believe by faith. Your word is inspired that it is without error. That it is what we need for faith and practice. God, we are grateful. So as we look to your word together this morning, <clears throat> Father, we humbly ask as your sheep that you do for us what we desperately need, which is to focus us in on truth. And as has been prayed, that you'll work in our lives, Lord, to embrace that truth it, to embrace it, to respond to it, to love it, to grow deeper in it. And so, God, that's our prayer this morning. And we love you and we praise you and we thank you that we can pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So as we return back to Acts chapter 15, it's a very familiar passage to us this morning at this point in time, as we've looked at it many, many, many times already what we've specifically been doing is just striving to unpack what it is that the early church there in Jerusalem really needed to solve in regards to the gospel and in regards to the law. As you know, there was a situation that had arisen where there were people that came in to the church in Antioch and began to teach things that were In opposition, if you will, or opposite, if you will, of what Paul and Barnabas had been teaching, which is that salvation is by grace through faith. These false teachers taught that in order for the Gentiles to be saved, that they needed to be circumcised. And not only did they need to be circumcised, but they also needed to keep the law of Moses. And that led to a discussion. And so we've been looking at it week by week as I've been preaching just answering a couple of questions at a time. If you remember, the very first question that we really began to dive into was: Is how is a person saved? What does the Bible teach about salvation? The Bible well, is very clear that as sinners, we need to be reconciled to a holy God, and the only way that that is possible is through Christ Jesus. And our response biblically to the gospel message is to turn from our sins and turn from our self-reliance and turn from our independence from God and turn to him. To turn from our sin and to trust God alone. Repentance and faith. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by works. Then we began to do some work. We refined that a little bit further, and we just kind of looked at the reality that they were looking a little bit deeper at this question, that it was more than just as how a person saved, but specifically we were looking at how are the Gentiles to be saved? That's really what they were wrestling with. And so we discovered from our study of the scriptures that the Gentiles were not required anywhere to become a proselyte to Judaism first. They didn't have to be a double convert, if you will, to Judaism first, and then to Christ second. But again, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, regardless, regardless of ethnicity. Both Jew and Gentile alike, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible has a consistent message. There's a harmony and unity in that message. salvation is by Christ alone the last time we were in this passage of scripture we began to look at another question that they had to really wrestle with and it was this question what is the relationship between Christ and the law what is the relationship between Christ and the law And so I broke down for you if you remember at that time the three aspects of the law the ceremonial the civil and the moral law. And I shared with you at that time, if you remember that Christ fulfilled all three aspects of the law, he fulfilled all of them perfectly and completely, he left no stone unturned. And so after we work through that, the next question, which we will look at this morning is this a really important question. A lot of people get this wrong and fall into error. So we wanna make sure that we get this right. What is the relationship between the law and the gospel as new covenant people? What is the relationship between the law and the gospel as new covenant people? So my aim this morning is to go back to the scriptures and strive as best that we can to answer that question. What is the relationship between the law and the gospel as new covenant people? Look with me at verse 1, please, in Acts chapter 15. The Bible says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Barnabas, excuse me, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles just as he did to us and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith now therefore why are you putting god to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear but we believe that we will be saved through the grace the lord jesus just as they will and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to barnabas and paul as they related what signs and wonders god had done through them among the gentiles after they finished speaking james replied brothers listen to me simeon has related how god first visited the gentiles to take from them a people for his name and with My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood or from ancient generations. Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. If you will, make your way back to verse 10. This is the verse that we've been wrestling with the last couple of times that I've preached. It's the reality in this verse. That's a rhetorical question that's asked to make the whole gathering think about the fact that Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the reason I told you that his yoke is easy and his burden is light was because he fulfilled the law for us. And so they still had to work all of this out and we talked about the significance of this verse and the fact that to go against what paul and barnabas had been teaching and even more than that to go against what the bible teaches about salvation was to put god to the test so we need to think about this here's the question for us as new testament new covenant people what's our relationship to the law to the gospel if christ fulfilled the ceremonial law and if christ fulfilled the civil law and if christ fulfilled the moral law then what in the world do we do with it it's a good question that we need to ask is it not what is it that we do with the law and i thought that a good place to go to answer this question initially would be to listen to what someone said who was actually at the Jerusalem council. So let's go to Romans chapter seven. Verse 12. Pastor Jim read this a little while ago. He's already preached on this. But let's read it again. Paul was there at the Jerusalem council. We just read that in Acts 15. Notice what he says. He says in verse 12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy. And righteous. And good. So just from this reading of this passage of scripture, one of the things that we realize as new covenant people. When we think about the law and we think about the gospel and our relationship with it, we need to affirm what the Bible affirms. Amen. The Bible says that God's law is holy. And righteous and good go with me to Romans chapter 3 verse 31 again Pastor Jim has preached on this when you back up just a couple of chapters there's a lot that could be said about this section and I would refer you to Pastor Jim's sermons but look at verse 31 Paul says do we then overthrow the law by this faith By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So again, just by a simple reading of the scriptures, one of the things that we are beginning to learn is that even though Christ fulfilled the moral law and even go, even though Christ fulfilled the ceremonial and the civil law, the law is holy and righteous and good. And Paul's very clear here that we're not to throw the law away. So what are we to do with it? I thought it would be helpful. If you have your second London Confession, you can follow along with me. You go to Article Chapter 19. If you don't have it, then you can listen carefully. Our Baptist forefathers help us think through this issue because they thought through this issue. And they're just drawing upon the scriptures to answer the question I've put before you. Page 40, Article 19, Section 3, says this. In addition to this law, usually called the moral law, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws. Containing several typological ordinances. In some ways, these concerned worship by prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings about moral, excuse me, and benefits. In other ways, they revealed various instructions about moral duties. All right, now listen to this part, please. Since all of these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the new order arrived, they are now abolished and taken away by Christ as the true Messiah and the only lawgiver, He was empowered by the father to do this. So we are not required any longer as new covenant people to keep the ceremonial law. Look at the next section as it deals with the civil law. Article 19, Section 4 to Israel. He also gave various judicial or civil laws. Which ceased at the same time their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have. Moral value. What does that mean? It means that we are no longer required to abide or live underneath the civil law of God. That it's been done away with. Look at Article 19, Section 5. The moral law forever requires obedience of everyone. Both of those who are justified. As well as others. It's an interesting phrase, is it not? What it's saying is God's moral law is binding on the believer and the unbeliever. If it were not binding on the unbeliever, then on judgment day, what would God use to hold them accountable? He's going to use his law. The moral law forever requires obedience of everyone, but those who are justified as well as others. This obligation arises. Not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Nor does Christ in any way dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he greatly strengthens it. So what does that mean? Though the ceremonial law we're not required to keep and though the civil law we're not required to keep as new covenant people, the moral law we are asked to keep, we are required to keep, we are called by God, our Creator King to follow his moral law. And I want you to think about it from Matthew 22. Matthew 22 there is a lawyer that comes up and speaks to Jesus and he asks what's the greatest commandment and Jesus says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself and then Jesus says that this is the sum of the law and the prophets now if you think about that and you use logic and you use reason and you run that statement that Jesus makes through the grid of the New Testament And you think about all the moral commands that we read in the epistles, and all of the moral commands that we read in the gospels, and even the moral commands that we find in the narratives, and even the moral commands that we find in the prophecies. The reality is, all of those moral commands, all of those one another passages, all of those things that we're called to do, all of the things that we're called to obey are rooted in and grounded in and grow from. God's moral law. It's still binding on God's people. It has no expiration date. In fact, we could back up to the Great Commission. Then I am sure that at some point in your life, as you and your bride were wrestling through the call to missions that you wrestled through Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, into all the world, making disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them all that I have commanded you. Brothers and sisters, what are we to teach other than the moral commands of God? What are we to teach other than the doctrine of God? What are we to teach other than the doctrine of Scripture? And do we not understand and do we not know that doctrine in and of itself, if we don't apply it, leads to dead orthodoxy? We are called to know doctrine, love doctrine, apply doctrine to our lives. Do you not understand that when you read an epistle of Paul, for example, that you read him give doctrine, and then you read him give the problem, and then you read him give the solution by applying the doctrine, And when he applies the solution, it's always the moral commands of God worked out in a New Testament, New Covenant context. We have to think, we have to reason, we have to connect the dots. We need the spirit to help us because if not, we'll fall into error. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. My goodness, is there any greater example in the Sermon on the Mount from the greatest preacher that ever lived. No, it was not Spurgeon. No, it was not Winfield. No, it was not Knox. No, it was not Calvin. No, it was not Luther. It was our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the greatest preacher that ever lived. And when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, my goodness, what did he expound? law. We love the Beatitudes, do we not? Be salt and light. on and on and on all those are expositions and applications of the law. So thinking through acts 15 now. I still haven't really answered the question. Have I? It may seem like I'm dancing around it, but I needed to lay a foundation first. Now we can answer the question. What are we to do as new covenant people with the law? Well, We do what Paul said. We don't throw it away. We see it as holy and righteous and good. We do what Jesus said. We apply it to our lives. We do what the apostles said. We apply it to our lives. That's what strengthens the church. Ephesians 4 speaks of it so that we would no longer be as little children tossed by every wind of doctrine, but that we would grow up into the head of Christ. So what do we need to do? Let me give you four applications. Number one. Remember what the new covenant teaches. Go to Ezekiel 36. Remember what the new covenant teaches. Ezekiel chapter 36. And when you get to. Ezekiel 36 find your way to verses 26 and 27 because this is the prophecy the promise of the new covenant and we need to remember what was promised in the new covenant verse 26 and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. What is that talking about? We know what that's talking about. It's a new covenant promise that there would be a day when the Holy Spirit would, prov- would perform rather heart surgery, if you will not physical heart surgery, but spiritual heart surgery, that he would cut out the heart of stone and he would grant a heart of flesh. This is talking about regeneration. Continue on in the verse, verse 27. This is what applies to us today. It's so easy to stop at what we've just discussed, but we have to keep going. Because there's two things that are promised from the spirit's work within God's people. Not only will he remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, but when he puts his spirit within us, look at what the verse says. I will cause you to do what to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What are God's statutes and what are God's rules? If not the moral commands of God, they are God's rules. They are God's ways. They are God's principles. They are God's precepts. It is God's word. It's the Holy Spirit working within the hearts of his people to not only give us a new heart, but to give us the grace we need, the power we need, the help we need to actually live out his commands we need the spirit of God to give us new life and help us with a new way of living that's what the new covenant teaches and so when we think about the law and we think about what we are to do with the law what we have to remember is what the new covenant actually teaches that it's the spirit of God that does not throw away the law but it's the spirit of God that conforms our heart to the law of God. That is sanctification, that we are being made more and more and more like Jesus. What does it look like? It looks like us knowing the law, loving the law, applying the law, and becoming more like Jesus. It's the Spirit's work in us that helps us do that. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 7, 12. If you have your Confession. Look back at Article 19, Section 6. Notice what it says. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works. To be justified or condemned by it, yet it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It exposes the sinful corruptions of their natures, hearts and lives. As they examine themselves in the light of the law, they come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin. Along with the clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Who is this talking about? It's talking about the family of God is talking about believers is talking about his children is talking about those of us that are under the new covenant that we need God's law. Keep going. The law is also useful to the regenerate the believer to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law shows them what even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. The promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and blessings that they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. If people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate they are under law and not. Under the grace so if you're taking notes let me give you let me break that down real simple like a couple of things that that teaches us and how we need to understand that the law is good the law is good it shows us God's will it shows us our sin it makes us wise unto salvation Paul told Timothy that in 2nd Timothy chapter 3 Verses 15, 14 and 15. God's word is a tutor that leads us to Christ. Christ is the end of the law. He is the purpose of the law. The law restrains sin. There are reward and consequences for keeping the law, not for salvation, but there are reward and consequences. It shows the punishment that we deserve. When we rightly understand the law, it fosters a deeper love for the gospel. The law, my goodness, one reason why it's good is it reveals the righteousness of God. Romans 321 speaks of that. It addresses our whole being, both our inward actions and our outward actions. Calvin talks about this in his institutes. He argues brilliantly how easy it is if a king gave an edict or gave a command and said, do not murder How easy it is to outwardly obey that and not murder and not be condemned by any court or by any judge. Oh, but inwardly, but inwardly, inwardly, though, we don't commit murder outwardly. We can commit murder inwardly. We can. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount that when you hate your brother it's the same as committing murder in your hearts. So it addresses our inward actions and it addresses our outward actions, which is why Hebrews 4 says that the word of God leaves us naked and leaves us exposed and makes us accountable to God. God's law encourages obedience to God. Ernie Reisinger said this, A special use of the law among Christians is that it makes Christ more precious to us. And it's right and true. So the law is good. It is good and we need it. And it's helpful. Be careful if you go in the direction and say that we don't need the law anymore because you're going to have a hard time sorting through the scriptures where the law is not found you're going to end up like this ancient heretic named Marcion who decided that it would be a good thing to rip out certain texts in the scripture and then you're going to be left without a complete canon because God's law is all through the scripture from Genesis 1 by the way when God gives the covenant of works to Adam in the garden it's found all the way through Revelation next we need to value Hear me carefully. We need to value the civil and the ceremonial laws because they're profitable for us. Amen. 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. The famous verses that talk about how God's word is inspired. If you continue to read one of the things that says about the inspired scripture is that it is profitable. One of the things that we need to understand is it was talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been completed at that time. So it's saying that the Old Testament is profitable. That means that it was written, though, after Christ said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, which means then that the civil laws that Christ fulfilled it are profitable and the ceremonial laws that Christ fulfilled it and though we're not required to keep either one of those any longer, are still profitable for us. If you don't believe me, go read in the Old Testament. Read about the the Feast of Jubilee, for example. How at the end of a, of a set time, there was a feast. I believe it was 50 years. Every 50 years they, they had this feast, and, and everybody that was in debt was set free from their debt. Whether they had been in debt for 49 years or they had been in debt for one year. All debts were forgiven and all debts were wiped out. Who does that point us to? King Jesus. What does King Jesus do? He forgives us our debt. He forgives us our sin debt. Whether you come to faith in Christ before you cross the finish line. One year before you cross the finish line. Or 49 years before you cross the finish line. Christ saves us forever those who come to him and he wipes our sin debt clean there is profit in the civil law there's profit in the ceremonial law brothers and sisters it is good we do not need to throw it away we need to read it we need to embrace it we need to know it we need to apply it we need to think about it we need to meditate on it we need to love it we need to live it we need to do all of these things there's value in it next we need to be careful that we Avoid a wrong use of the law. Jot this down. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. Paul writes to his young protege in the faith, his young son in the faith, faith, Timothy, and he says that the law is profitable if. It's a conditional statement. One uses it lawfully. It's profitable if. It's good if you use it. Lawfully, That means then by logical conclusion that there's a way that we could use it unlawfully. And two historic errors that have plagued the church since the beginning of time are the errors of antinomianism and legalism. If you are listening to me today and you're saying he's saying that we need to obey the moral law, he's a legalist. You're wrong. I never said that because a legalist believes you must keep the law in order to be saved. See, sadly, unfortunately, the word legalism gets thrown around and most people don't even know what it means. If you add a rule to this or you add a rule to that, a lot of times people make the accusation "Well, you're just being a legalist. No, maybe I'm not, or yes, maybe I am. It depends on what I mean by that. If I'm meaning that I need to keep a law in order to be a saved, that's legalism. That's legalism. And that would be an improper use of the law. The Bible never leads us in that direction. In fact, Paul tells the Galatians, I am surprised that you are turning away so quickly to another gospel, another gospel that can't even save you. It's not what I preached to you. And it doesn't really matter if I changed it or if an angel changed it. If it's not in accordance with what was once and for all handed down, it's wrong. It's false. It's legalism. It'll bring death. Bunyan pictures this in Pilgrim's Progress, does he not? When Christian decides it's a good thing to listen to Mr. Worldly wise man and get off the path and he goes to the town of legality and he, or excuse me, he goes to the town of, yeah, he goes to the town of legality and he wants to talk to a man named civility and Mr. Legality tricks tricks Christian into believing that in order to be saved because he hasn't made it to the wicked gate yet, the narrow gate, he's tricked him to believe that in order to be saved that he needs to keep the law. And if you know anything about the story, if you remember anything about the story, what happens is this, the further he journeys and the further he goes, he rubs up against what's pictured at Mount Sinai and he fears for his life and it's going to crush him. And by God's good grace, evangelist comes back along and says, what are you doing here? Why did you get off the path? See, it's a picture of legalism. The other error is just as deadly and just as dangerous. And it's an overcorrection. You see, the true gospel says we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Legalism says it's Christ plus works. But antinomianism says no law. You don't need the law. We should throw away the law. In fact, you just pray a prayer and then you're saved. And then from there, you live any way that you want to because you are free in Christ. Brothers and sisters, is that biblical? The answer to that is no. We are not called to throw away the law because we're under grace. Go read Romans. Listen to Pastor Jim's sermons. This is what he's taught us. This is what Paul is teaching us. We just read it for crying out loud. We just looked at it for crying out loud. God in his goodness has given us the law to guide us to show us his will, to show us what he desires of us. To protect us, to lead us, to guide us, to help us, to defend us, to do all these things for us, which we would never do for ourselves because we don't have enough wisdom in ourselves. This is why the new covenant promises that the spirit would be given to cause us to walk in his ways. Be careful that you don't overcorrect and go in the direction of throwing away the law. It's dangerous. This is why Paul Washer would say that the straight and narrow, he likens it really Israel to walking on the thin edge of a razor blade. That's a pretty thin, thin edge, Pastor Jim, because it's so easy to fall off of one side or the other into error. What's the right use of the law? Paul says it in Galatians, it is a tutor that points us to Jesus. It is a tutor that shows us our need for Christ, not only for salvation, but for living, not keeping in order to be saved. If you walk out of here saying, I said that you're misquoting me, never said that. (coughs) A.W. Pink said it well. He said, when a sinner is saved by grace that does not make him lawless. There is a power within him which does not destroy, but strengthens the law and causes him to love the law and have a desire to keep it, not through fear, but through the love of God. That's a powerful quote. I the World Series, I believe, just wrapped up for you baseball fans. That was a grand slam. That was a bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, grand slam, two outs. That's what that was. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands. They had to connect that dot. They had to cross that bridge. They had to think about what are we supposed to do with the law? Jesus fulfilled it and I thank you that they got it right and we're gonna see more of this next week when we look at accommodation and how to use our Christian Liberty well in a way that honors you and strive to uh, to, to use it in a way that we don't bind other people's consciences we're gonna see a great example of that until then, Lord, if you allow us the next Lord's Day, help us this Lord's Day to reflect deeply upon what you've taught us from your word. Lord, we love you. We Thank you. and We praise you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet as we worship the Lord through song.